The Sour Hour is meant for the serious brewer. The Sour Hour may contain some seriously funkified content. The Sour Hour is not for the faint of heart. So exercise some damn discretion, would you please? Sheesh. And now, here's the Sour Hour with Jay Goodwin. that time again uh part two of our two-part documentary series on american solera here with uh chase healy who's on the line uh chase are you still there oh yeah <laughs> he's ready to go uh well we poured uh we're just gonna dive right in we poured uh your your third of four beers or i say we have poured oh. i actually mean scott Did I you four? i see four yeah we have a, we're, we got, or again, I say we, but Scott only poured it for himself. Uh, where's your glass? Uh, I don't have one. Oh, jeez. How I many glasses have you gone through, Jay? One Jesus per beer. Christ, it's, it's appropriate. You think dishwashers grow on trees? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a good comeback for that. <laughs> okay. Right, but this go. is, uh, Chase, we're pouring the rasp barrel, or mm-hmm. at least that's how you uh, labeled this. Yeah, one. another another hand-scrawled label by Chase? Well, the label's just got done. Like yesterday, so so they'll be getting applied here next week by my wife. So a couple of them, um, including the uh, cherry one, we concluded the last episode of this show with, have commercial labels look like ready to go. Oh, beautiful too! Yeah, they are really gorgeous looking labels. They look like almost like watercolor paintings. Yeah, they're water watercolors. So the idea was like if I was going to do something new and different than like the look, kind of the ideas really kind of needed to stand apart from all the work we've done at Prairie or it's kind of kind of silly to be if I didn't have something new to communicate and new to work on then it didn't make a lot of sense so we've kind of really tried to make the feel and everything kind of different no definitely a different vibe to oh, the yeah. labels here um, and then yeah the beers are different too uh, can you tell us a little bit about the process behind the rasp barrel so as I kind of mentioned I've got the 30 barrel fooders that I pull beer out of to, to to fruit those, but that small amount that I pull out, that five or so barrels, goes into uh, 150 gallon uh, like punch-in fermenters that have like kind of like a like an eight inch, six inch mamlay on top, and then a side valve. And um, so that's that's where we took you know I took the same beer that I used in the the cerise and racked it onto two pounds per gallon of whole raspberries and and. Uh, did a series of punch downs through the first week of fermentation, then let it ride for a couple months. Awesome. Definitely driving a lot of raspberry flavor out of this. Um, I don't know if it's just the fruit or if it's the base beer. This one is a little more sour to me than the, the cherry. And Yeah, uh, and, and it's all, all attributed, I think, to the, to the acid I'm getting in, in the fruit that I'm using. Those raspberries were some sour dudes. <laughs> and so does that mean you're not uh, intentionally adding any bacteria to this or it's just in it's subdued it's in the background yeah no it, it's it's in there it's just you you start to use so much damn fruit and um it's 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 kind of pretty dominant in the beer and, and honestly maybe that's a a commentary to the state of kind of where people seem to really enjoy these beers is, is a little over the top i think 
Is it just me, or is the punch-down method, like, I, I feel like I didn't hear about it ever, and then all of a sudden in the last six months I'm, I'm hearing lots of brewers using that method? You know, it was it was something I had, you know, I'm, I'm not too far, and I'm friends with everyone down at Jester King, um, and it's something that, you know, there at the time, um, you know, the, the person down there really helping and working on all that stuff, Adrian, was, you know, coming from the wine world, you know, had started implementing that down there, and and I had there at a dinner we did together in, in Denver, uh, apricot beer that they had done that on. And, and it just blew my mind, the the flavor and, and how much they were able to get out of the fruit and the character. And so it was something I asked a lot of questions about and knew that, you know, when I was starting to do those types of projects that I'd want to implement it. Do you guys think that there's going to be that's going to mean that maybe less fruit is going to be needed to achieve the same effects using the punch down? I think it certainly helps, you know, and it's just, you know, breaking, helping, helping kind of get that fruit more, you know, introduced into the beer in a deeper level. And, um, but I mean, two pounds per gallon is still a shit ton of fruit. Absolutely. And, uh, if you guys want to go back and listen to, uh, Adrian talk about that from our, uh, Jester King episode, that's out in the Sour Hour archives. Also, Walt from last week, he talked about punch down as well. I think that's kind of where you're going with that. I uh, think that she pretty much introduced it into the beer world, and I'll give her a ton of credit for just the amazing beers they're producing down there. Um, and we're all friends, so you know when when things work well for others, people want want to learn as well, and we're able to implement it into our facilities as well. Yeah, and you guys are nice enough to let us record you sometimes. <laughs> yeah. when and then the, the whole world, and then <laughs> everyone will be making amazing fruit beer to. to the better of mankind did adrian go back to the wine world i think i heard she did she did yeah oh, i don't want to speak for her i know she had just spent a stint um doing wine stuff in australia but i believe she's back now and um but i'm not completely i don't want to speak for anyone as to kind of where, what she's doing as of this moment i'll speak for all of them jester king they're just a bunch of vagabonds you know <laughs> yeah. every time you know talking about us being in copenhagen every time i see those guys on facebook and they're everywhere. They yeah. are just all over the place. Jeffrey's but in Iowa right now, my home home state, and I'm like, man, I need to be doing beer events back in <laughs> Iowa too. And, and we hung with him too. We hung with Jeff at uh, the uh, Wicked Weed Invitational. Absolutely. So you know, a bunch of exotic I'll be places. and I'll be with him next week in Arizona. We're doing some uh, weird ass mega collaboration uh, on the rim of the Grand Canyon. That sounds pretty good, too. Well, actually, you know what? Speaking of that, Chase, it, you know, I, I just realized that these labels kind of do remind me a little bit of some of the Jester King. Not not like the funk metal or the, the sort of crazy illustration labels they have, but they have a couple of sour releases that are sort of this is this is sort of uh, evocative of that. Was that intentional? Do you agree? Oh, you know, I, I, I would say no. It's, I hadn't it hadn't even the thought hadn't even occurred to me until you mentioned it, because, yeah, there are some. You know where they've gotten away from them being somewhat character focused and more just um, just abstract, I suppose. Yeah, Kevin, what do we have in the cellar back there? You know, do you know what I'm talking about? These Jester King beers that kind of look a little bit uh, like this. Uh, yeah, like Fentau. There you go. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, that one looks like Fentau. Yeah, that one's like that one's like a waterfall in a tree and like a, a peach, isn't it? Yeah, but it's just, it's the color scheme. I think is is it? Too. I, I'm not. I, yeah, you're right. You're it's, right. It's, it's different in, in style. It's just the, the it's color the pastel is, colors. Yeah, right. The, the right. I, I'm, I'm this is all it, Moscow because he just like loves. Yeah, I'm sorry. Art, art elements because they're really cool. They're these cool like sort of watercolor paintings. But they're not like stylistically. I think they're a lot different. I mean, if you look at Chase's other beer, the uh, Cerise, the Fooder Cerise, I think that's not evocative of 
No, I agree. Yeah, not at all. Well, anyway, uh, Adrian uh, blew into the beer world like a tornado, revolutionized it, and (laughs) peaced out. What a badass. I'm sure she'll be happy to hear that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But, yeah, they're doing great things uh, down at Just Chicane, our friends. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's great to to share all this knowledge with each other. I think the one thing I just want to hit on about uh, the punch down quickly, and we don't do it at the Rare Barrel, but not not any reason, just because we haven't had to. I think there is the part about submerging the fruit and getting more fruit flavor. I don't think that means you're using less. But it's also one thing that Walt hit on on the last episode is how you can just keep it so it doesn't float as much and maybe it'll take a week, you know, a couple of punch downs a day. But then you're not having something that's not covered by the beer. Sorry, that's a double negative, I think. But There's risk factors. Yeah, there's risk factors with mold growth on top. So it's not just, oh, yeah, I want that fruit down below so I can get all this fruit flavor. Maybe even riskier is, hey, I don't want mold growing on the top. Something to consider with punch downs. But, you know, I think we were talking about a unique process there with, you know, introducing the punch down into your brewery. Do you think, uh, Chase, with American Solera, there's any other ingredients or processes that make you kind of feel like this is what makes my brewery unique or, you know, maybe it's your approach to blending? What What do you think differentiates yourself on the, on the process and ingredient side of things? You know, I, I think the biggest thing that I'm working towards is really implementing you know, my, my cool ship fermentation program and as being a deeper part of what I'm doing. And that beer is just so slow and, you know, kind of not completely understood as far as brewers in the United States. So it's, it's something that I'm able to each season implement and get a little deeper. And I probably have, you know, beer over a span of the last three years from, from the process and maybe like 150 barrels worth of different ages within the brewery so i think next year alone i'd like to do 100 barrels of it and probably just grow at that exponential rate um, as, as i get more and really utilizing that here as a base for the direction that a lot of the projects kind of go it just takes time though absolutely i'd like to get to a couple of questions and chase if you're able to hold on for maybe one more segment we can us through a whole bunch of questions that we have for you. Does that sound okay? Let them fly. All right. Scott, why don't you ask yours first, and I've got one from uh, the Milk the Funk group. Back Sounds good. Yeah, we'll start here with uh, Kevin Osborne, who says, do higher IBUs kill or just inhibit lacto? He says he's curious if he can make a more hoppy beer, like 30 to 40 IBUs with a mixed culture, then use the yeast slurry from that batch to make a lower IBU beer that will hopefully sour. I haven't tried, and I discussed this a little bit with uh, Lance at, at Omega. And, um, you know, from his feedback, it was more that it just kind of inhibited the growth, didn't necessarily kill it, but I don't know that I would. I mean, I guess if it's a small scale, it's not a big risk, but I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't, I think it would work, but it's not certainly something I've tried. I would second that. I don't think I don't think kills the right term. I don't think you bump up the IBUs. Maybe you inhibit it to such an extreme amount that it won't have a very good fermentation if you lower the IBUs. It won't be very viable, you know, as as you've just kind of messed it up a little bit. Right, right. But you know, not, that's not to say, oh, I do one spike in IBU and then I run five batches at low IBU. That's not to say it won't recover over those five batches. So I really do think it is an uh, inhibition, not a not a killing. Uh, one of our uh, employees who I mentioned, I guess now it's on the last show. Uh, Aaron does his own uh, homebrew saison, and he said, and while it's not technically a, a mixed culture, he does notice that. Um, 
you know, as he dials up the IBU, it becomes more like a traditional Saison. And as he dials it down, he definitely gets acidity from this, uh, this blend of yeast and probably bacteria. Um, so just use it as a tool. Lever up and lever down uh, hops as your control on acidity and keep some of your high IBU beer on tap or around to blend back into your uh, other one if it gets uh, too sour for you. I'm brewing a really hoppy beer the next couple days, and I'm not that concerned. So, you know, I'm not trying. It's certainly not supposed to be a sour beer, but because of the amount of hops that are in it, I'm, I'm anticipating that not becoming a factor, and it's a draft beer, so it'll be gone long before anything has a chance to really get going in it. Cool. And by the way, that question was uh, brought to us by sourbeerblog.com. Follow along with Dr. Lambic, who was on our show two shows ago. I think it might even be more, so uh, a couple of few. Maybe he can call in for the homebrew extravaganza show. Oh, yeah. I mean, he has done a lot for homebrewers and sour beer, for sure. But if you want to catch up on his work, go to sourbeerblog.com. All right, one question to get out and then a break. Uh, we got a question from Milk the Funk from a Chase Healy. How do you make kettle tacos? Okay, so I was, I guess, just trying to be – I was trying to make it my presence known that I was uh, reading through all the great questions on there. Um, I, uh, yeah, I was brewing the other day, and, and we had had a company tasting room party on Sunday and had a lot of leftover fajitas. and So I wrapped a bunch up in foil and then come about 10 o'clock to set them on the top of the kettle above the manway. And an <laughs> hour or so later, they were, were steamy, melty, and delicious. So would you consider that a, a quick taco <laughs> instead of like a barrel-aged, you know, kind of longer time uh, taco? It, you know, that's, it's, um, you know, a highly debated top, <laughs> hot topic as far as the use of kettle heating tacos. But it's efficient and effective, and I think if you're clear about it and what your intentions are, then no one's hurt. Absolutely. Just as long as there's no confusion with, you know, the, the mole sauce taco that's, you know, people – Put a lot of their sweat, blood, and tears into that one. I'll bet uh, Adrian, formerly of Jester King, can make a better kettle taco than anybody in beer. She has a better technique. She punches down the cilantro because it <laughs> tends to float to the top of the salsa. So you gotta you got to keep that submerged so all the flavor is being absorbed by, by everything you else. See why there. people love this show? We're so innovative. Yeah. We're just we're bringing these innovative techniques to the masses. Just the cilantro punch down. Just by the way, I should do a quick shout-out here because we're talking about tacos on a beer podcast to our friends at both tired hands and cellar maker who do a great beer a collaboration beer called taco hands which is oh, yeah. a beer literally made with taco ingredients mm-hmm. that's that's terrific that they do every once in a while so if you ever see taco hands out and about and the way uh, tim from cellar maker describes it, he's like i just want like that smell where it's like you eat a bunch of tacos and you, you that smell that comes off your fingers i just want that in a beer all the time <laughs> And it works. It works out well. Do they serve it in a glass with, like, Lowry's seasoning on the rim? It's a hard shell corn tortilla made into a cup. (laughs) Pints only. (laughs) All right. Well, enough about uh, kettle tacos, but thanks for the – and maybe you can post the recipe to to Milk the Funk if you're feeling generous, Chase. Sure. Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm completely open about that kind of stuff. Thank you so much for being a pioneer. <laughs> right. We'll be right back. We, we won't try. We'll try not to hold Chase up for too much longer. Uh, thanks for your time, but we'll be right back on the Sour Hour. When I order a beer, I want my server to know more about it than I do. I want someone who enjoys good beer and loves helping others enjoy it too. I want someone who knows how to pour a perfect pint for every beer style. 
I want a Cicerone. The Cicerone Certification Program is creating the type of people who help you enjoy great beer. Home brewers and craft beer lovers know beer is more flavorful and complex than ever, and it takes some serious knowledge to store and serve beer right. Cicerone's no beer. There are three levels in the Cicerone Program. Certified Beer Server, Certified Cicerone, and Master Cicerone. Cicerone's are truly the sommeliers of beer. The best beer locations have a certified Cicerone on staff. Relaxed and unpretentious, Cicerone's are tested on storing and serving beer, beer styles, flavor and tasting, the brewing process and ingredients, and pairing food with beer. Learn more about your next beer guide at Cicerone.org. Certified Cicerone, because it takes top talent to present a perfect pint. You listen to the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. Ah, excellent. We are back. You like that? <laughs> Very big. It's the Sour Hour. Scott and I are just having like the worst inside joke right now, but it's fine. Uh, you know who has great jokes, Scott? Our brand new sponsor, Oregon Fruit Products yes. from Salem, Oregon. Family on business. Yes. Awesome. Owner Chris, he's a hilarious guy. They make a laugh a, a minute. Excellent uh, fruit for beer. Fruit for brewing. Um, appropriate enough. Uh, Fruitforbrewing.com is their website. We use their uh, aseptic purees for our beer. Really good quality fruit. You know what you're getting because, uh, you know, sometimes with fruit you pick off the tree, you know, there's stuff growing on it. Could be good, could be bad. Who knows? Um, but if you want something that you know is not going to. Take your beer a different direction. This is a good way to go. Really easy to use. And, you know, they're they're introducing new fruits regularly, um, innovating for brewers, and really great to work with, dealing with Chris, who's been working with us a lot at the Rare Barrel. They'll listen to your ideas on new products or how you want things delivered or, you know, whatever. They're, they're great to deal with. So go ahead and check them out, fruitforbrewing.com. You know what they do, Scott? What? They bring fruit. To life. Yeah, they do. Nailed it. Nailed it. Hey, what is the last fruit you you used from them? Um, Tart cherry. Cherries. Yeah, really good. Really good. Uh, We used a little bit more than we usually do. We did it in a dark beer. Yeah, can't wait. It's already fermenting, and it's tasting really good in the current uh, blend, but can't wait to see that beer come out and uh, hit the market. Yeah, we've relied on them for a lot of fruit, fruit beers. What do you think is? What do you think of the chances of that beer being as good as the sour cherry beer we just had from Chase? Zero. Not a chance <laughs> wow. in hell. Zero percent. That's for sure. Uh, but we we have the raspberry beer still in front of us. We have one beer left. Oh yeah, we do. So we have only we only have Chase for one more segment. So let's. I just don't even remember sending you four beers. <laughs> This you know is what? quite the opposite of the normal conversation, isn't it? Normally, it's like I remember you sending. I remember sending eight beers. Why are there only three? Well, tell, what, what's the name of the? This is the Western culture. We're drinking them out of order. That's, I forgot I'd sent that. All right. Oh no, we are. This is out of order. Okay, what what, what okay. should what should we have ended with? The probably the it, it doesn't matter. Okay. We'll, we'll edit it after. We'll yeah, rearrange, rearrange all the segments. Right. This is the first segment. This should have been the first beer we had. Well, uh, welcome Chase from American Solera. Can you explain <laughs> a little bit? No, just check. Hey, uh, you used to have an outro, Jay. Uh, <laughs> no, no. But so this is is this this is called uh, Western culture? Is that right, Scott? 
Yes. Chase, uh, what's the deal with Western culture? Western culture is uh, the first release from uh, like my cool ship project as far as it is in a proper cool ship. Uh, we'd done one a few years ago. I did a collaboration with Yepa at Evil Twin where he had a small cool ship in the back of my pickup truck. And it worked. So I went ahead and bought a real one. And um, this is the first release from it. it, it it's actually, it's a, I think, an elegant beer, but it's a blend of uh, two different, like, kind of weird, long, kind of like Portuguese, like, pipe-type barrels. And at the time, I didn't quite realize that, like, when you're doing cool ship beers, it's better to put them into a blending tank prior to barreling so you get a cohesive mix of the, the different things that you're collecting. And so... One of these barrels was a much higher presence, while another was able to get a higher um, acidity. Uh, so blending them, I think, balanced it out to uh, just a really nice, elegant beer. But ultimately, um, using the blending tank is the way to go. But but it, it, it tastes so dang good. I, you know, it was fine to blend up and, and get it out there. You know, I'd have to agree with your assessment that this does taste so dang good. I, oh, you're already drinking it. Yeah, it's open now. Oh, yeah, it's, it's good. It's open. So here's an interesting thing on that too. So you guys had your show where you talked about uh, bottle conditioning and techniques um, that you can use for for doing the sour beer, um, which I listened to and started implementing. So the cherry beer and the raspberry beer you had were using that technique where I took the day before uh, four liters, two of which were a uh, dextrose solution, and two liters of it was the beer that I was packaging and put my conditioning yeast in that the day before um, to get it climatized. And um, I think that it worked incredibly well. Uh, but the beer you're having right now is one that I did not do that Interesting. in. And so the, the carbonation, is it, was, it didn't get quite as high of a level as I'm achieving now with using that process. That's excellent. Yeah, shout yeah. back to our uh, Dr. Mac Bachman show. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Side note, uh, Dr. Bachman, Chase, and I are all going to start a band called Terminal Acid Shock, <laughs> which is then that's killer. The, <laughs> what's the genre like? Uh, d- double bass drum hard that rock. That's killer. Or that was a that was a sleeper pun right there. Killer, <laughs> yeah, get it? Because it kills the yeast. That's the terminal. Is this part. an American Psycho reference? No. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's an excellent episode. And I yeah, I'm actually uh, I'm sorry I lost track of that because yeah, Chase uh, was telling me when we were talking in uh, Copenhagen that he was trying this stuff out and. Yeah, the results are the proof is in the pudding, as they say. Definitely, it's something I implement with every every beer I package now. That's awesome. That is awesome. What do you think, Chase? Would be the as far as you can speculate the difference with this beer? Had you done that, it would just be more effervescent, or would yeah, be, it'd, it'd just yeah. be more effervescent. Okay. I think, and and other factors in this is that um, this, the beers that are blended here are are fairly old, so we also have an issue of you know there not being as much dissolve co2 in it at packaging that's something i could have probably adjusted for a little bit more but i think that that's also having sluggish conditionings with these acidic beers has has definitely been an an issue and something that that i feel like that's quickly corrected for me excellent one thing i'm curious about with with your range of uh, flavors that you're dealing with and techniques are you seeing common off flavors that you have to deal with or troubleshoot and how do you how do you go about that um the biggest the biggest one i've had even it really is from the bottle conditioning and and getting a lot of mousy flavors um in the beers as the brett's picking back up and and conditioning 
um, the beers. And, and I think the, the priming that I'm doing in the process the day before is helping by because I use a, a wine yeast to condition all my beers. And so giving that yeast a, a, a head start to really get ahead of everyone else I think is helping. But, but the biggest thing with that, and I would say it's the biggest problem I've had with my beers, and I think I've asked you about it, I've asked a few people, is you just got to let them sit. Time is really, I think, helping with, with that problem that I'm, I'm having. And, and that's, you know, a part of it sucks because then you need a lot of room to store all your shit. Um, but so these beers are needing several months of conditioning where some traditional, you know, beers that I've made in the past, more Saison focused are ready maybe two to three weeks after bottling. Yeah. But you wait all this time for sour beer to taste good. And then it finally does. And you put it in a bottle and you're excited and then it takes even longer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and it keeps yeah, taking up so. space. <laughs> but, uh, you know, one thing I wanted to, another thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, that's how you're, you know, you, you mentioned maybe this is one of the off flavors you're, you're dealing with and how you limited it, it is more time. What are some of the flavors that you're driving in your beer that you're, that you feel like are really positive and, and, and what do you attribute that to? You know, what, what do you think you're really good at and where does that come from? Oh man, that's a, that's a, that's a lot to, to think about. Um, you know, I've kind of, like I've said before, I've really hung my hat on, on, I think Brett flavor development and, um, you know, a, a thing that I've really focused on and achieving with a lot of beers when we talk about kind of more of my stint in more of the farmhouse brewing world was, uh, achieving just like a tremendous amount of dryness in, in the beers I was producing. And that's something that, you know, takes a lot of thought in recipe development, brewery technique, uh, brewing techniques, um, and then, you know, strategy as far as packaging. You know, so it's not just one thing. It's a lot of things that are allowing these beers to get, in some circumstances, below zero by packaging. So that's something, you know, that I've really focused on with my farmhouse brewing. And, and honestly, this the sour world is relative to, you know, years, but is, is, is new to me. And I think I'm still really trying to find a signature for myself. But I think I think as you're tasting maybe that Western culture beer, I think a lot of the flavors you're tasting in it is, is really something I'd like to bring in to the rest of the beers and i think that that's a complexity from using yeasts and bacteria that you can't just have someone ship to you overnight yeah and i i don't maybe i haven't mentioned it yeah i really like this beer a lot um very nice light acidity good good complexity nothing's too strong it's just it's it's got that nice complexity and drinkability at the same time which is a hard thing to pull off i think so it makes it maybe a bit of a sleeper beer too for um maybe your typical beer geek that maybe wants to get slapped across the face with with a dominant characteristic and this one i think kind of plays in the more uh elegant and thoughtful area which you know maybe doesn't help help you know make it fly off the shelf although i think people will 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 move towards this um I think it's yeah, it's it's almost like a brewer's beer. Oh, I would agree with that for sure. Um, and you mentioned before, just uh, you know, with your different techniques and still being in development, you know, you're not sure what what are the things to kind of plant your flag on, saying you know this is what I'm what I'm best at, or this I'm sure it's you know coming from this. You know, one thing that you're getting uh, external feedback on is you know you you were on the latest uh, craft brewers conference panel on spontaneous beer and there's some heavy hitters up there on that panel uh can you tell us a little bit about some of your takeaways from the panel from the other panelists and then what 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 were some of your main mes messages for the audience for the people who weren't able to be there 
I mean, what a what a dream situation to be, you know, on a panel um, with guys from you know great breweries like Russian River, Allagash, and Jester King. Um, you know, those uh, those are definitely my brewing heroes. So uh, to be sitting with them is is pretty ridiculous. Um, but I think the biggest takeaway I took from it. Um, you know, where, where Jason from Allagash is, is really impressive to see the amount of like true hard research he was able to bring, bring to the discussion. Whereas I feel like mine was more applicable and, and like maybe how another brewer might approach it similar to me that doesn't have the, you know, the, the ability to do that, but is willing to take a risk and kind of go for it, looking for, you know, results based on, just kind of the feedback you're getting as you're trying the beer versus really doing harder studies on on the you know maybe more chemistry type aspects of that production so um it was you know i felt like i had a place on the panel although maybe i was in a little over my head on the whole thing but um you know what a what a great experience and you know it's a dream come true i remember i went to the my first brewers uh conference in um boston I think like 2009 and just being just blown away at, you know, the brewers and being in their discussion. So to be at one this, you know, later on, um, was pretty cool. Yeah. Well, it's well-deserved. And, uh, so, you know, you, you mentioned maybe you come from it more from the practical side of things. Do you have, uh, maybe a, a first step recommendation or just, a you know, your number one with a bullet thing for, for brewers and breweries that are new to spontaneous beer? You know, the the biggest thing that I've learned and, and, the, and the harder thing I've had to deal with is, um, you know, there are suppliers for aged hops, but to just be really careful with that hopping rate. I've got a lot of beer from, you know, 20, 2014 that's just not very sour because my hopping rates are really high. Hmm. Um, and pulling that back is what's really made, you know, especially the stuff that I've got coming from this last season. You know, it stinks because it's going to take a while, but it's – the beer I'm most excited about. So it's taken me a, some time to really dial in kind of those thresholds with, with my hopping rates and, um, you know, mixing the beer prior to, to racking. It's just taken some time to, to really hone it in. But, I mean, the biggest thing I would say is you just kind of just kind of got to go for it. You know, if they're members of the Brewers Association, I believe they have access to all of our notes from that and, um, I mean, it was so simple as the first time we did it was, you know, my friend Yepa just saying, hey, let's do this. And, you know, I said, okay, well, I've got this old dairy tank that I was using as a mash tun. It will probably work. So we just went for it. You know, and it was a, a few wine barrels, so it was just such a minimal risk and a low-cost experiment that it paid off because it's really pushed the direction for my brewing. But um, I think it was maybe just a willingness to go for it. So, what was your hopping rate then versus now? Um, it was a, it was right over a pound, um, and now I'm I'm more at about point eight, and probably this season I'll even drop it maybe this a little bit more on some batches to just see where it, where it hits. And um, it's a lot of whole leaf hops. It's kind of they're kind of hard to deal with if you don't have a brew house that's really meant to accept whole leaf hops. So um, they're a bit of a headache. Gotcha. Well, while we still have you, Chase, I want to get to, you know, we got a lot of listener questions. I've been selfish in asking a lot of my own, but let's uh, let's try and run run through some of the ones from, from email and maybe a few from Milk the Funk and get you out of here. 
It's a rapid fire round. Yeah, lightning round. Yep. Here's one from Stephen Trentham who says, "Hey guys, I recently stumbled upon the sour. I really enjoyed it. Uh, he plans to bottle his first sour soon." One of the concerns I have is the formation of the pellicle in the bottle. I understand that it will not harm anyone. However, I don't really want the appearance of pellicle if I can avoid it. Do you have any recommendations on how to avoid this issue? He says he, he does plan to filter via a coarse filter to eliminate fruit pulp and existing pellicle. He says the American Sours book, uh, American Sour Beers, that is, addresses the fact that Russian River does, in fact, use a coarse filter for this exact reason. So any suggestions besides the, the coarse filter? Um, if you get a pellicle in the bottle, like just turn it on its side and then turn it back up. That's not a good answer. But yeah, it, it comes and goes. I mean, it's just not it's just not that big a deal. No, totally. So and I, he, he recognizes that. And I think it's just the, the aesthetics, like the appearance that that's bugging him. And so you just basically you sh- not shake it. But like Chase says, put it on its side, put it back up. We, we get it. And it, it just goes away from handling. Like okay. you, you don't even have to. I Movement. mean, if, if you want to intentionally, you know, dissolve it and back in the beer, you know, it ours ours come and go. Basically, they form, they go, and kind in conditioning, especially because if you especially just bottled it, then it recently saw oxygen. You know, no matter how good you are, you're going to see a pellicle form on a lot of these beers, and yeah, they'll, they'll go away. I wouldn't worry too much about it. The big thing for me is I condition, and this is a part of my bottling process. I suppose I didn't mention I condition everything on its side. So I'm getting a lot of junk kind of even up there. So, um, But you're right. By the time I upright it, label it, put it in a box, and kind of gets that jostling, it, it goes away. All right. I've got one here from Milk the Funk. Mark, miss you? Miss you, miss you. Yeah, I miss you, Mark. Uh, really enjoy your Chase's uh, Funky Gold Dry Hop Series. Can Chase talk about that recipe and process, including dry hopping? Thank you. Wow. Just go for it, huh? Uh, ten words or less. Ten words or less. <laughs> um, so that beer starts with, um, it, it is a, a kettle-soured beer. We use wild lactobacillus off of grain uh, to achieve it. And um, once the pH is at a desired level, we're boiling as you would and um, then hopping more or less like an IPA. Um, through kind of a big flame out addition and then a lot of dry hopping kind of once the fermentation has dropped down. So that fermentation is usually with a, a farmhouse yeast that can really handle that lower acidity and still get you uh, a pretty low final gravity and then dry hopping prior to bottling. All right, here is one from Jake Wadsworth, who is in the uh, – this is a long email, so I'm just going to kind of paraphrase some of it. He's in the Royal Australian Navy. Uh, he's currently deployed in the Middle East region, so I'll thank you for your service on behalf of your fellow Aussies, Jake. He writes in with a, a quick brewing disaster and then a bottling question. So let me let me quickly read his disaster because it's often uh, awesome, rather. He said, uh, while making um, the uh, sour beer that is now aging at home, I covered the kitchen roof in wort and sour beer dregs. <laughs> After cooling the wort and pitching the bottle dregs into a one-gallon carboy, I decided to try and minimize the oxygen by creating a CO2 gun, in quotes, using a plastic tube I connected to a party can 
keg gas dispenser. I was gently squeezing to release small amounts of CO2, but I accidentally let too much out. The large bubble pushed about 500 milliliters out of the neck of the carboy at high speed. If it weren't for my head being in the way, more of it would have covered our roof. <laughs> my wife came home uh, to see me mopping the roof of our kitchen. Uh, the uh, resulting beer tastes amazing. All right, so his bottling question is, his face was in the way. I'm guessing he kind of like sprayed himself in the eyes, right? Yeah. Ooh. Nice job, Jake. So his question is uh, a bottling question. Um, once you have created a blend... How do you know when it is ready to bottle? I understand that uh, allowing the blend's gravity to stabilize uh, is crucial. Are there any other metabolism byproducts that produce CO2 uh, when broken down by breath that you need to worry about? That's a hell of a question. Yeah, it is. You know, um, for me, blending is you know usually less of a concern. I'm typically not blending beers of different gravities, so to speak, um, or relative to them being you know really dang close to one degree Play-Doh. Um, what is what is that like, ten point oh eight or something like that? Oh uh, four, oh four, oh even lower. Um, but so for me, it's not something I've you know got really a lot of experience with as far as dealing with because the beer I'm using is usually so low that blend typically give it at least a day and then package is is really my practice on it. Yeah, I think that's a good way to go. We we are stability obsessed, but yeah, there are secondary things you need to look at, and flavor is uh, chief among them. You know, you can you can look at it visually too. I, I mentioned that before on the show. That's a good way for homebrewers who can't take you know just incessant readings of their beer and test them. You know, to a point one Plato stability, which I, I told you we were obsessive. That's that's how we roll at the rare barrel, but. You know, if you're just looking at the activity in your carboy or jug or whatever it might be, that's going to give you a good indicator. We have a little bit different experience with our different recipes. So our golds are between one and two Play-Doh. Our red is between two and three. And our dark is between two and a half and three and a half. So we're not, and we've seen good stability over the years in, in each of those. So we're not always worried about Brett fermenting to zero. Now you'll talk to a few other brewers and they'll tell you the total opposite that their Brett strain ferments all the way to zero. So it's kind of like play it cautious in the beginning and then move forward with caution. And that's how we've done it uh, at the Rare Barrel. We probably started way too cautious, but you know, it's a, it's a little nerve wracking. Um, the other just comment I'll make, and again, thank you for your service. I don't mean to give you a negative comment. I wouldn't have mopped up that mess because you basically just inoculated your whole kitchen for an awesome, spontaneous, <laughs> a spontaneous batch. You should have knocked out into a little pot and then done it overnight. I don't know, maybe your wife was coming home that day. But if you could have you know, kept her at the in-laws for one more day, you could have knocked out that spontaneous beer. You would have been good to go. Great point. And then you mop up after that. There's always, you know what, Jake can always screw up another, I mean, have another, um, you know, explosion. Uh-huh. And there's always tomorrow. There is always tomorrow. Uh, one more. You got time for one more, Chase? Absolutely. Okay, this is from Joe Idoni. Adoni. He says, a pro brewer friend of mine recently made a kettle soured goes uh, using lacto with a dose of smoked salt and then uh, pitched with Chico. Unfortunately, somewhere along the line, he developed a whole lot of what we think is isovaleric because it tastes strongly of Parmesan cheese. He tried to cover it with grapefruit, but I don't think it will be enough. Before he dumps it, um, I was considering getting into some barrels and pitching Bredel or Brennan to eat the off flavors. Thoughts? Dump it. I dump it also. Um, you know, isovaleric is something that could clean up with time. Or it could just torture you for the rest of your days because it maybe you'll pitch your Brett and then you say, oh, this week it's better. And then, oh, next month it's better. It's getting better. And then it's 
six months and it's still getting better. And it's like, oh, now I've put six months into it. And you painted yourself into a corner. Sure. And you made this beer as a kettle sour, a quick sour beer. So just dump it you and make another one. It. Yeah, just make Time-wise. another one. But uh, if it was sea salt, smoked sea salt is expensive. Mm. I will say that. Yeah, I think the problem with those <laughs> is you start to like convince yourself that it's all right. Yeah. And it's not. Right. Yeah, just cut bait and make the beer you want. All right, so thanks for uh, all the questions, listeners. I'll get uh, Chase out on on my favorite. Chase, what's the biggest mistake in sour beer making? You know, if I had to to say on, for me, the biggest mistake I have made as a commercial brewer producing these styles is I really haven't given myself probably, I don't have enough space for this stuff. So I run into issues where I can't get to barrels because i got so much shit piled up. i got offices full of pallets of beer when there should be a place to work and i'm just out of room and i think it's just the need for space and, and you guys have a beautiful space there in berkeley but we're in tight quarters and that's something i think i overlooked going forward with with the project so um you know that's been been it for me i mean i, I think like the last comment it's you know if, if it's just not right dump it you know, no reason to hang on to stuff, and I'm guilty of that. I hang on to beer not because it's even bad, but it may not be getting somewhere, but I just don't dump it, and barrels build up, and I just need to be honest with myself sometimes and be like, time to move on. And you do start sort of chasing good money after bad. To make another one of my stupid art analogies, like uh, that happens from time to time where, like, I, it's like I don't. I'm, it's not coming out how I want it, and I keep messing with it and messing with it, and spending way too much time that I could otherwise be devoting to something that is going to go how I want it to go. But it's like I can't let this bad painting win. I can't let it beat me. Mm-hmm. So you end up just wasting more time, and it still doesn't. The end result never gets to where you want it to be. Yeah, I dumped. I dumped ten barrels of Brett beer today. I just didn't have anything to do with it, and I kept letting it clog up and block up my production lines because it's like, oh, I'm going to find a barrel project or I'm going to figure out a way to fit it in. I'm not that excited about it, so I haven't done too much with it. And today I just decided i got to send it down the road so I can make room for, for other projects that I know I can capitalize on as far as getting through the process into packaging. Yeah, there's, that's a problem we're running into right now with the rare barrel. We're getting nice and full, and... We want to make all this new beer that we're really excited about. We, we're confident, you know, not overconfident, but we're excited that this could make really good beer, but we don't have space for it. So what's the solution? Just take the beer you're least excited about and just dump it down the drain. You know? it's, it's, it's crazy, you know, when, when you're starting and you don't have a big cellar of barrels and, and um, it doesn't really hit you how valuable that space is and what the true cost of aging beer is until you start running out of room. I will second and third that. It's the, it's the time of sour beer, but it's also the space. And, you know, that that's something that when you do run up against the wall, it, it's it's a hard thing to to learn. I'm still learning it today. And so I'm, I'm very glad that that was your, your answer for that, Chase, and I appreciate Thanks. that. <laughs> Why don't you guys just take a page out of the Dickinson Brothers book and just open a massive production facility somewhere off-site? That sounds good. Yeah, just take over an airplane <laughs> hangar at a local regional airport. I would love to. I'd love to. That does, that does not sound bad at all. No. <laughs> well, Chase, uh, I lied about that being the last question. I want to hit a couple of promo things for you. So we've got eight twenty six coming up as an important day for you. That's when you guys are opening for the first time. What are some of the the details surrounding that for people who can get there? 
Yeah, so that weekend we'll have uh, three different bottles available. The the Money Blend you tried, the, the Cerise, the Cherry Beer, and then Fooder Gold, which is actually more or less the beer that I'm using to, to make those couple of different beers. So those two bottles will be available for people to try along with kind of some of my older and other projects that I've had because, like I was saying, we have just never been able to sell before. So I've got cakes with some really killer stuff that I've just held on from other beers and even some prairie beers, and those will actually be able to be consumed and purchased at the brewery that weekend starting Friday at 4 o'clock. And, um, you know, from there, we'll see as I get more beer. Maybe I'll, I'll get some out and away from the brewery. But until then, after that day, people can come any weekend and uh, Friday and Saturdays and scoop up some of the releases. We should be hitting about one a month. I've got about 12 different beers, honestly, backlogged. Um, so I'm just going to need to pace how I release them so I'm not overwhelming people. Um, so a lot coming this fall. And we'll be at a lot of the different festivals around GABF and a few different fun things this fall that people can find us at. Well, and congratulations again on that, being on being able to sell your own beer over your counters. It's long overdue, and it's, it's huge. So we're stoked for you. It's a game changer for our entire for sure. industry here in our kind of less than um, well-known beer state. You know, it's about to change, and people will be opening breweries because of it. Absolutely. It's about to change, and everyone should be driving over to your place on 826. And We're conveniently right between Dallas and St. Louis, so Midwest has no excuse. Yeah. <laughs> you hear that, Midwest? Step it up. <laughs> All right. What about website? Where should people go? Yeah, we've got AmericanSolera.com, Instagram, AmericanSolera, and our, our Facebook page is you know the one that we're probably the most most up-to-date stuff, day-to-day stuff gets posted on. And I Instagram quite a bit, so people should hop on that as well because I feel like I give a pretty fun behind-the-scenes of my life as a brewer. And if you like seeing someone really happy catching a big fish, definitely follow Chase on Instagram. Oh, fisherman? <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Good for you. Chase, thanks again for coming on. Uh, hopefully we'll see you again real soon, if not uh, sooner than GABF. We'll see you out there, and everyone should uh, flock to his booth like I will there. Uh, American Solera, thanks so much, Chase. Thanks, Chase. Yeah, thanks, guys. And thanks for sending these beers, man. We appreciate awesome it. Awesome beer. Absolutely. Cheers, man. All right. Great beers. Oh, yeah. We are God, so yeah. spoiled. It is I ridiculous. Know, I know. It is absolutely outrageous. And then I go and I just nitpick the crap out of everything else because it's like the bar is just too high. I, and I feel bad. I, like, I fully am aware that that's what I'm doing. Like, forgive me that this is like uh, 93. It's like a, a minus A. If your teacher liked you, she would have just given you an A. My teacher would have given me an A minus for a 93, you know. But it's, I don't know. When the bar is 100, yeah. I don't know. It's tough. We'll uh, we'll continue to feel bad for ourselves in the last segment, <laughs> but before that, we will take a short break. We'll yes. be right back on the Sour Hour. Hey, my brewing brothers and sisters, this is Jamel Zanisha, and I want to tell you about Heretic Evil Twin. You might be familiar with my homebrew recipe, which uses massive late hopping to create a balance between the malty sweet and the hoppy bitter, along with an outrageous malt and hop character. I wanted a beer with the same bold hop and malt character, so we played around with the homebrew recipe until we were able to make a great commercial version, too. We've created a beer rich in malt character, full of caramel, toast, biscuit, and an ever-so-subtle roast note. On top of that, we piled in an insane amount of citra and Columbus hops at the end of the boil, as well as in dry hopping. This damn-the-cost approach to hopping gives Heretic's Evil Twin a great blast of citrus and tropical fruit that can't be matched by any other hop. The result is a bold, malty, hoppy, but easy-drinking beer. This is our top seller, a flagship beer, and I couldn't be prouder of it. Cheers. To find Heretic Beers near you, click on Find Some at hereticbrewing.com. 
great show with Chase tonight. A couple shows back to back. I want to thank uh, our great sponsor for uh, providing this show to all of you, the Wine and Hop Shop. WineandHop.com. WineandHop.com. Oh, yeah. You know, there is no more effective form of, of um, advertisement than the jingle. That's just, that's science. Yeah. And so should we just... FarmersOnly.com. FarmersOnly.com. So visit the Wine and Hop Shop. At wineandhop.com. Okay. They probably don't like that, but. No, I think they probably love it. (laughs) Actually, you know what's even better than you loving it? Just because they're from Wisconsin. (laughs) Yes. No. They're they're in Madison, College Town. There's actually um, almost the only thing better than loving it is hating it. The the jingles that I hate Mm -hmm. are the ones I can't get out of my head. Like Cars for Kids. One eight seven seven cars for kids. Great cause, terrible, horrible. Jingle. But yeah. I can't get it out of my head. You remember the Seinfeld uh, by Menon Costanza? Costanza. <laughs> I, I just can't get him out of my head. <laughs> That's the ultimate one. So uh, we'll, we'll end this with a uh, wine and hop Menon version. Wineandhopshop dot com. They're carrying Omega yeast and Giggy Star friends that we use. Most items will ship within twenty four hours. Best of all, being listeners get a flat. $8 shipping rate on orders under 50 pounds. Just enter BN shipping in the notes field of the shopping cart, and the discount will be taken off after checkout. The Wine and Hop Shop doc. Oh, sorry, the Wine and Hop Shop. Wine and Hop Shop. Okay. <laughs> that didn't work out as well as I thought it would. <laughs> wine and Hop Shop. One, oh, I guess it's wineandhop.com, though. Whoops. Wineandhop.com. Yeah, it's yeah. hard to do. Uh, we'll think of a good one. Yeah. Or, hey, listeners, uh, write us with how you'd like the jingle to be for wineandhop.com. Please. Our great sponsor, the Wine and Hop Shop, wineandhop.com. Okie doke. We want to do some that's questions. That's a lot of good info. Uh, questions. Uh, let's see. We tasted all the beer we need to taste. Yes. Yep. Um, so, yeah, let's do questions, but let's leave enough time to talk about the outro. Oh, yes. The catchphrase. Okay, so yeah, let's do. This is actually not even a question. It is a comment from Isaac Brannon, who says, Hey guys, just wanted to quickly weigh in on the question about lab pitching rates you were answering with Dr. Lambic on episode 35. Is this, just to clarify, is this capital LAB? Or, yes, capital okay. LAB. Uh, so just for clarification, that's lactic acid bacteria. Okay, yes, thank you. Uh, at Bootleg Biology. We found that we get a higher cell count when propping our PDO pentosacus, pentosaceous. Uh, it's a strain of PDO. I suppose those PDO strains with some calcium carbonate for buffering. Uh, however, using too much can have a buffering effect on the beer. We did a series of trials and found that a sweet spot at two grams of calcium carbonate per liter of starter, um, resulting in a cell count high enough to use a pitching rate of only a quarter of a percent. Of the total volume of wort. So that's a 50 milliliter per five-gallon batch, or about a 300 milliliter per barrel. Uh, this rate sours as quickly and reaches the same pH as the more commonly recommended pitch rate of 4% by volume uh, with or without calcium carbonate. When propping uh, with calcium carbonate pitching, higher volumes is also adding uh, more buffering capacity to the wort. As always, you may see different results with different strains, local water profiles, et cetera, but he just wanted to share what worked for him. Did that make sense as read? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Okay. Um, and the other thing that I'll just piggyback on that is uh, there's a lot of studies showing that um, bacteria, just overall, not just for beer or sour beer specifically, uh, they'll produce uh, more acid at higher starting pHs. So 
you know, they'll it, imagine you're, you know, growing something around water pH. It starts at pH of seven or so. And then it's, you know, the, this is how I view it. And microbiologists, uh, correct me if I'm wrong out there, but you know, that's got a terminal acidity and let's continue to use pH at, you know, 3.5 or three or something like that. You know, going from start of seven, you're going to produce a lot more total acidity if you actually get down to your terminal, just like a, a beer would produce with alcohol. So imagine applying this, and I, we've sort of seen this and talked about it a little bit. I'm not sure if this is the exact reason, but imagine you have uh, wort, a regular non-sour beer, a brett beer, and then a sour beer. Those all have different pHs. So wort is going to be in the fives, beer is going to be in the lower fours, Brett beer may be in the upper threes to four flat. Sour beer may be three to 3.5 or maybe even a little higher. So, you know, if you're counting on adding bacteria at any of these levels, think about the relationship to how much farther that uh, lacto or pedio strain can go towards its, its final destination, basically. And the longer it has to go, the more acid it has potential to produce over that time. That's me sort of speaking out of my ass a little bit, but you know, there's at least a link with some studies where it's like higher pH means more acid production uh, amongst bacteria. So and I've seen that. You, know, you introduce bacteria sooner, like into a wort or into a clean beer, while there's still things available for it to ferment and produce acid with, that's one factor. But I think also the pH is a factor. So I'm not surprised you also see corresponding uh, success with or just more growth as you would uh, with acid production in, in, the, in a higher pH scenario. Yeah, so there's more with a higher pH and there's less with lower, right? Is that the rule? Right. Yeah. Well, like, why is that even controversial if, you're, if, you're, if that's observable? I have observed it, but I haven't, you know, run my own study on it, or I can't cite a specific study to refer people to. So I, I think that would be generally agreed to. It's kind of like you think about calories burned and running. You know, you're running a marathon. Someone runs it from the beginning. How many calories do they burn versus the person who runs it from the middle of the race? Something like that. I, I always kind of like have sort of, I guess, maybe like a skeptical reaction when someone, some, the common sense seems to suggest something and someone goes, oh, no, there's a study. And I'm always like, so you don't, so you just ignore <laughs> the common sense. Like, what if a study came out that said that that wasn't true? W what would you think about it? Because you'd be like, well, I'm observing, I'm observing it. Yeah, I think we're, yeah, all right, we're, we're on a, a hot topic here where there, there's the over studification of things in the United States and, you know, Daily news and local news will, you know, sensationalize studies that are not very well done but are made to just report on the news and get publicity and all this stuff. So I think a lot of studies are put down these days and turns people away from science. But then there are studies that are well done uh, that, you know, reinforce that science is fact and there's nothing really to argue against it. But that nuance there that separates the two, that's not well understood by myself included depends on the subject but you know you don't always know if oh just because it's a study or you know this survey said or scientists from you know this college say that this might be true you know you really have to read it and actually know what's going on in that industry already to fully process it so I basically just try to listen to people who are in that industry to tell me things are smart. That's why I give the caveat is that I'm not actually – I am in this industry of making this stuff, but I'm not a microbiologist. This is what I've seen. I do believe it to be true. But, yeah, take it for what it's worth. If you find something that's the opposite, post it, 
have it peer reviewed. That's what science is all about. The All right. Here's a quick question uh, for you, Jay, from Mac Diebel. He's an assistant brewer at uh, McDuff's Brewing Company. They appear to be in... Uh, way to not put a city on your on the on the email signature. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'll look up the area code of the well, phone. He has, he has five different phone numbers and no city. Well, look at you. Got to look it up now. Yeah, you're get, right. Get into trouble. Uh, let's see area code. Let's well, let's ask uh, Siri. Oh, love asking Siri on the air. Where is area code two hundred eight? Idaho. Here's what I found. Oh, you're not going to tell me, British jerk? Okay, it's, uh, yeah, Idaho. All right, so there you go. McDuff's Brewing in Idaho. Great. Max says uh, he's looking at all of the various barrel transfer tools, and he tried to find pictures of yours, Jay, but was not successful. He's wondering if there's a specific model that you use. They're starting to play with barrels over there, and he was just going to buy this cheap thing because it's cheap, and then he includes this more of your link. I'm swinging the monitor around to Jay. It's a gas barrel transfer tool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, first off, you should just buy that at More Beer because they're a sponsor. Yes. Low, low, low price of two twenty nine ninety nine. Mm-hmm. Now that that's over, um, <laughs> <laughs> this is what's commonly referred to as the Bulldog. I'd say it's what a majority of breweries use to transfer out of barrels with pressure. Some breweries will use pumps. Uh, sometimes I'm I'm not a huge fan of that because of the oxygen pickup. But if you have a pump or a system that will negate that. More power to you. There's nothing, you know, I, I'm not going to say that that's the wrong way to go. But what we've done is we've transitioned away from the Bulldog to something called the Racketeer. R-A-C-K, and then I-T, and then T-E-E-R, Racketeer.com. A uh, decent amount more expensive than the Bulldog, but um, when you're racking so many barrels like we are, it's just so much faster. It gets a lot better seal on the barrel. Correspondingly, I, and this is a thing I really want to highlight when you're listening to this and considering these things. The reason the racketeer goes faster is because it seals the barrel uh, better. So you're actually applying more pressure. If you go from the bulldog and you're running it at whatever PSI, and you run the same PSI on the racketeer, you have to make sure that you're not running too much pressure on the racketeer because you had to overpressurize on the bulldog. You were losing so much from the seal that now you don't lose on the racketeer. And barrels don't technically hold pressure. So, I mean, maybe there's a minuscule amount, but it's one of those, you know, not recommended things. So you want to probably add, they have a PRV on it. We've sometimes added a uh, pressure valve to show us how many PSI uh, pressure are on the barrel. But if you're, if you're racking a lot of barrels and, or if you can just afford it, I'd recommend the Racketeer. Otherwise the Bulldog is kind of, you know, I think that would probably have the majority of the, the mind share in the marketplace of, Uh, brewers who uh, do a lot of barrel racking all right and we'll do one final question for the show today from clayton latham who says uh, he's about to rack a finished saison uh want to do epic brewing elder brett dregs in secondary i think oxygenating in secondary is stupid then i think of potential benefits and uh, bretta ability to uptake oxygen cell wall benefits blah 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 thoughts I mean, just keep oxygen out as much as you can and hope that the Brett fights it off when you do it unintentionally, I would say. After initial primary fermentation, I am not intentionally adding oxygen to the sour beer. You're just letting the barrels do that, right? The barrels do that on a very, uh, you know, micro-oxygenation scale. Um, if you hate what I'm saying and want to do it anyway and you want 
uh, affirmation. Go back and listen to, I say this all the time, but go back and listen to the Troy Casey show. I think mm-hmm. it's episode three, mm-hmm. something like that. And and his beer is amazing. So, you know, listen to his prep. And it again, you know, we say all these things like they're declarative, but we're, there's always the caveat. This is what I do. Uh, this is what happens in my brewery. You know, take it for what it is. You don't have to do this stuff. It's just if you're looking for something to try, maybe try what one of the brewers on this show uh, says or what I've said about what we do at the Rare Barrel. But try it out for yourself and make sure to adjust if it's not working for you. Um, That's definitely a key. Thanks, Clayton, for writing in. Thank you to everybody who wrote in and continues to write in to um, Scott at thebrewingnetwork.com or SourHour at thebrewingnetwork.com or JJAY at thebrewingnetwork.com. And thank you to Dr. Lambic and SourBeerBlog.com for bringing you all the questions on tonight uh, and every night's show. Yeah. All right. So we got one more thing to talk about. Yes. Which is the outro. Stay sour. Yeah, the sign-off. Uh-huh. So I, even before that stay sour thing, I've been thinking, we'll see you next time. Stay sour. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I've been thinking for a while. I'm not a big fan of our outro. I like that. It's, uh, you know, play that funky music. Uh-huh. White boy. Yeah. I think that's very apropos mm-hmm. if you want. Mm-hmm. Of, of, of everything. Of everything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it's just too long, you know? And one thing I like is, uh, I'll give a shout out to uh, my favorite podcast, uh, second favorite to the Sarah, but uh, is a football podcast from NFL.com called Around uh, the NFL. Okay. And at the end of the show, the host is kind of like, all right, that's it for the show. Let's wrap it up. And then the producer cues up this music that kind of starts like, doom, doom. And it goes on. It's very low key for a little while, and then it builds up to a crescendo, mm-hmm. which the host knows is coming and has timed it out over time. It's you know five six seconds, okay. and he's saying, you know, thanks to this person, thanks to that person, thanks to that person. We'll see you next time on Tuesday. Like, and then just like nails the like on Tuesday, like at the crescendo, yeah. and it just lands. Okay, and it's okay. like. You know, our countdown is like it's pretty long, and I don't really have that much to say at the end of a show. I, I see. Well, and it, and it actually does the opposite ours does of what you're describing, because instead of going to a crescendo, it sort of fades itself out. It does. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I hear you. And then and then you know, so I think we could, you know, I know you're going to have fun with this, but uh, you know, if there's any suggestions on how we should sign off the the show, listeners, you can write in and give some funny suggestions that are like maybe I don't know some inside jokes that we have or. Scott, you can look for these this type of like short clip that you know does a little build up, and okay. I'll send I'll send you the the end of that podcast to just show you what I'm talking about. Doesn't have to be exactly like it, but something like that. Okay, duly noted. Perhaps for the last time. Maybe. Well, we have a show next week, so I doubt. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, no. I I have a I have a seven days. I'll figure something out. Okay. Yeah, and I'll send I'll send you that. Uh, so so right now, how many like how many seconds do we have? Left? A minute and fourteen. Yeah. Right okay. Now. I don't have a. a a minute and 14. And then it doesn't, it kind of like. And then maybe if I ended it on that last dune. Right. But it would have to sort of ramp up. And then it keeps going to this. Uh, I see. Well, it's just too, I, I can't time it out if it's that long. That's fair. Well, and honestly, we've been doing this is two years, so it's maybe it's time for another uh, outro. Yeah, we can change things. You know, we could change the intro if we wanted. We, Although we I, like, I like uh, Kasabian quite a bit. There's a lot of other songs on that album. A lot of other songs. A lot of other songs I sent to you that could have been the intro. Maybe one, you know, one show, one 
There's not a lot going on, which is never. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll we'll play some of the other stuff we were considering. Steven now, so behind the curtain, Scott is now telling me how many seconds are left. And I feel like we could do this in the other one, but you gave me 30 seconds. Uh-huh. And I've been talking about this for now, so 45 seconds. <laughs> uh-huh. And we're still going. But you know what? We'll fix it for the next one. It's been a great time on the Sour Hour. We'll see you next time in about one week. Stay sour.